Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait. You look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money. A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Oh man, you're so dead, Tom Jones, Natalie Jean. Welcome to Pop History's episode on Marzak. No, I wake you back up alive. You're alive now. Uh, Thank you. You are very welcome. Wow, she would have committed to that. She would have pretended to be dead for that the entire rest of this. I know. Much like much like Tom Jones, I would have run and left everybody else to fend for themselves when the aliens showed up. (laughs) How amazing! Talk about quintessential summertime viewing Mars Attacks and watching it again. I swear, man, every time I watch this movie, I can't believe that this movie got made. I can't believe that this isn't a movie that people talk about as much as Independence Day. So we're doing this episode what today. people? I talk about it as much as Independence Day. This is Day. a thing. In, in our... In our um, in our weird circles, and I hope, and I'm assuming that y'all's weird circles that are listening to this right now, remembering that Mars Attacks is such an amazing movie is it's really it's pertinent to having a smile in the summertime, and giving mm-hmm. having any excuse to rewatch it makes me so happy. So you guys both grew up. Welcome, welcome to the show. I'm Jackie. Hi guys. Hi, I'm Holden. Natalie. Hi, I'm Natalie. Uh, we're all here. And uh, yes, I don't, you know, it's funny. I do remember it being on. I don't, I don't think I have the same love affair, Jackie, that you did. I wasn't like humping my VHS copy I was up or whatever. Like you said you did a lot with yours. <laughs> I think I saw, I talked just... about smiling. I talked about happiness, but no, no humping involved. Uh, I didn't try to uh, remove skin from my head to look more like the aliens like you did all this kind of stuff that you did I didn't really have are you skin shaming me right now (laughs) I do remember enjoying it love the films of Tim Burton and it was weird like only a few years ago maybe maybe it was maybe it was longer than that I think it was like not very long ago I sat down with our good friend and filmmaker Adam Wirtz with other couple of people and we all just randomly we were like let's watch a movie and we just decided to throw on Mars Attacks and I had forgotten how charming that this film is I had such a fun time rewatching it now that I have a little bit more context now that I have a little bit more appreciation for the genre of film that it was it was attempting to pay homage to and just the cast alone is so unbelievably fantastic. So in a, in a way, I feel like I didn't admire it as much as I should have back in the day. 
And I think we'll get into, we'll definitely get into why this ended up being generally a flop and uh, how how it all came to be, which had a lot to do with Independence Day. It's a shame. It's a shame it was a flop because they put so, I appreciate it from a filmmaking standpoint now as an adult, they put so much work into every single one of yes. those scenes. And the stunt scenes are so fun and I miss everything being live all the time um, because even though there was a bunch of alien imagery cartoon cg things a lot of it was still obviously on in real real spaces and not on green screen which i think uh is lacking sometimes in movies now nowadays nowadays uh, these movies but i uh my my little friends that i loved um independence day we we were being little edgelord children and we're like we sided with the aliens so we were always like excited when they killed people. Um, we weren't psychopaths, so how dare you? <laughs> how dare you? I didn't say anything. <laughs> You're looking at me. <laughs> also, I want to go ahead and say I love Independence Day. So nothing yeah, I say I on do. this episode means that I love Independence Day any less. But I think that Mars Attacks needs to be properly revered in a way that as yeah. a kid I was terrified of Mars Attacks which is why I loved it so much. I think that the the tone of the movies and the style of the, it being very patriotic and with aliens makes them cross over in a way that maybe was or wasn't intentional I guess we'll learn but mm. I connect those movies in my brain really deeply to the point where when I was rewatching this movie that I've seen a hundred thousand times I for a minute thought that Randy Quaid was in it because <laughs> uh-huh. he he is the trailer park person in Independence Day. Yes. And I was thinking he was the trailer park person in Mars Attacks. And yeah. he's not. It's a different and I was one. like completely I, I got it in my head that at one point it was going to be a music video with Will Smith going Mars Attacks. You know, it's whack. You got it. We love the music video. Please. Do the Ack Attack. Oh, we oh. I thought it was going to be something like that. I will. I would watch that in a heartbeat. Have you rewatched the Wild Wild West music video lately? It's great. I also think, though, that where it did terrify you, Jackie, as a kid, and that's why you loved it, I do think that this movie, is it's rated R, right? It has to be, I believe right? so. Is it? I don't know. There's, like, no blood in it or anything. I mean, but there's it's so violent, though. Yeah, but that's that's a ratings thing. That's a trick. I bet you it's actually PG-13, because if you don't it show actual PG-13. blood... It is PG-13 for sci-fi fantasy violence and brief sexuality. Interesting. Yeah, so y- you can get away with that rating if you do a bunch of violence but don't show blood and guts. You can actually do quite a bit of it. But that's why this movie is so smart is because he's doing it as an homage to Ray Harryhausen right. and how and also the oh, the sci-fi movies of yore that's ex- and also which we will get into the trading card series he wanted to this is all an homage to exactly what they used to do where it's like you even look at the the brutal skeleton bones that people are lasered into but they're all bright green and bright red as <laughs> they die no, makes absolutely no sense now, most of this movie but it's great it doesn't need to it's not trying to make logical scientific sense but it definitely plays in that space that Tim Burton 
exists in a lot existed in a lot before he went just full on cookie cutter. And I do feel, and I will make the case for the fact that this movie is that turning point. This, that went, is so smart. You're so CGI. right. Concur. Yeah, it, it, this was the turning point before he went full CGI, but also full kind of cornball. Yes. Uh, I'm not saying he went exactly to Willy Wonka right after this. I think you know <sighs> he did some other stuff, but. But still, it, it's sort of this was what pushed him in that direction. I don't know. Did he? What was what was between the what was between those two? Probably. Um, I'm going to guess. What's his name? The Barber Killer musical. Oh, no, Sweeney Todd yeah, was in the 2000s, right. though. But but either way, I think that this really shifted it for him. Also, I think that this was a box office failure, not just because it was overshadowed by Independence Day, but also that it plays in that space that it's like it's not quite for kids. But it's not quite for adults. Yeah. It sort of kind of exists somewhere in between. And someone like me can appreciate that. But I think when it comes to getting a massive audience to come out to the theater and having it exist in that space, he got away with it with like Beetlejuice. But the Beetlejuice was more fully for adults, I feel like, at the same time. Oh, yeah. This for one sure. just wasn't quite either. And, and whereas it works for a young Jackie. Right. It works for like a young us. A young it's not little gonna... weird kid that makes people yeah. uncomfortable. It's not for everybody. Yeah. Also, it does make sense. You're right, though, Holden, because right after Mars Attacks, it was Sleepy Hollow, and then it was Planet of the Apes. Yikes. So yep. that is what came afterwards. So yep. you can see the difference for sure, which leads into the big fish, the Charlie, the Chocolate Factory, Corpse Bride, all that other stuff. And you're right. This completely is the turning point for him. Mm -hmm. And also what I find so interesting, and when you're talking about what made this movie a flop, is that I think a lot of people watch this. And if you watch the trailer, I guess I understand where people are coming from. A lot of reviews I read about it talk about how it's not funny enough. That's crazy. This isn't a fun. It's not a com. But it's also not. It's not a comedy. I. But the the performances, especially by Jack Nicholson, made me laugh so, so fucking hard, hard this yes. week when yeah. I was watching it. They're so good. I love his performances. I will say, though, that would have been one of my critiques for the film. I do wish they went a little bit harder in the comedy uh, in the comedy push. I think it could have been a bit, the script could have been a bit funnier. And yet we get these amazing, hilarious visuals. Yes. Jokes. And yeah, I wish the visual, that some of sure. the yeah. script, I wish the script had a little bit in, more in line with those visual jokes. I think would have actually made it a bit stronger. That said, I don't really want to criticize it too much because I do fucking love this I movie. really enjoy it still very much yeah i guess we should talk about well let's just jump in and start talking about let's what it's based on in. because this is also another thing that i had absolutely no idea about same same the trading card i guess is what you're talking i am about, talking right? about yes the trading card series that was produced by tops in 1962 i i we're gonna put some up with the social media for this episode but the mm -hmm. the trading the mars attacks trading cards are brutal yeah, they are really very fun. gory they are exactly what you think of if you think about what is a trading card like that like what what kind of trading cards existed that they could make mars attacks based on said trading cards they it is brutal for 1962 it features the art of sci-fi artist wally wood and norman saunders uh, product developer lynn brown was inspired by wally wood's cover of ec comics weird science number 16 and pitched an idea based on it if you want to know more about the history of uh ec comics check out which the bruiser did episode on it the cover is of a spaceship dropping aliens the cover of weird science number 16 that is a spaceship dropping aliens onto Earth to the horror of three kids. Brown said the cover depicted UFOs landing on the Earth and releasing a group of large-brained, foreboding aliens onto our world. 
The invaders were pretty hideous, like nothing I had ever seen before, until in 1955 when I saw a similar-looking creature in the Universal movie This, This Island Earth. He really liked how it wasn't just little green men. It was like scary-ish creatures. And I'm sure that you will also learn about if you go listen to the EC episode of Wizard and the Bruiser. But when uh, when Len Brown was asked, why did you make, how did you get the idea of Mars Attacks to make these guards out? Len Brown said, back in those days, there was a lot of science fiction movies being made. It started with Woody Gelbman. We talked about maybe doing a horror series of trading cards because horror comics were really big a few years prior. Then they all got banned. The EC stuff all got banned. Comics Code Authority. It's this big thing. We've covered it a lot on that other show we've already mentioned. But yes, it is kind of this crazy thing. Comics were really cool. EC Comics was awesome. All that old school, gory, crazy murder plots and revenge and all this, you know, even true crime had like a huge, huge movement in comics. It was like really, really edgy stuff. And then the Comics Code Authority was like, nope, it's got to be Spider-Man. So that was like a government issued ban? Because people, they were freaking out because these kids were like loving these comics where people were just like getting opened up and like, you know what I mean? It's all marketed towards children. But it's like, come on, let the kids enjoy it. It's not cigarettes. I mean, even (laughs) listening to this of what are some of the examples of the cards and why, just like in the EC Comics and all the other things you were just describing, why these cards got banned fairly quickly. There was one card showing a giant insect decapitating (laughs) naked women in the shower. Another (laughs) featured a dog being vaporized right in front of its crying small child owner. It says dog on fire. I believe is what the name of the card is. But I will say, and and I'm going to, I want to talk about this because I looked through every, all 55 cards so that I could see the connections that scene's in the movie. Yes, a so many of these scenes are in the shot movie. Shot on fire. I know, a dog gets zapped in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's in the cards. There's a ton of stuff in the cards. The giant robot. I will say the cards, what what the cards do uh, do that the movie doesn't, uh, you already mentioned it, Jackie, the giant insects. Also, as the story goes along, they don't do the music thing. Exploding the brains that was created by apparently Howard Stern. We'll talk we about it. We will talk and, about um, that. Where? Uh, but... They end up getting into a spaceship and firing nukes at Mars and going to the home planet Mars and blowing it up is like how the cards end. Yes. But so many little touches you see in the miniaturization ray, the the evaporation stuff where they turn into skeletons, like all of that stuff is is in the cards. The cards like have blunt, brutal titles like Crush to Death, Burning Flesh, and The Human Torch. And then there's also <laughs> card number 13, Watching from Mars, where three Martians enjoy a glass of wine as they observe the destruction of the capital on a giant TV. Oh, which it's is nice. Yeah. It's fun. They like wine. They love yeah. drinking and they love having fun. And of course, all of these get banned but what of course happens <laughs> people like us and, and the people that knew that it got banned went crazy it developed a cult following and then in 1984 the original 55 cards were reissued now you can find the cards online they are very expensive they are now collector's items but just looking at the idea 
that man, 1962. Uh, can you imagine? That was before, like, yeah. the, you watch, I remember my mom talks about the movie Psycho and how it changed her life of what she thought horror was. I was like, well, in 1962, they had these cards. Yeah. No, I th- see, that's my, that's my argument for having, not censorship, but having pushback because it makes it more fun. If there's squares around, you get upset. It's more exciting to find the stuff. Yeah. If everybody's just chill with it all the time, then you can't ever do any shock value things yes so be square i need squares around me (laughs) (laughs) and i wish i had i like i collected like marvel cards and like teenage mutant ninja turtle cards i would have loved like an ongoing story card collection oh yeah that's like such a fun idea that it's a narrative that would really make me want to collect all of them actually that was the case with batman the movie trading cards because it very much was in chronological order of the film and i was like i now i want the whole movie in my hand with the cards i well the ones that do in the reverse though that aren't always very good like um the garbage pail kids cards which were great but made one of the most horrific unwatchable movies of all time. Oh, yes. yeah. I, we could do an episode on Garbage I would love Kids, that. by the way. I would absolutely be, love to cover the cards and I the would film. love that. I just remember I had all the different variations of Gambit on trading cards because I mm, thought Gambit was the sexy. Between Gambit and Storm, I just had all the... Any trading card I could find that had them on it, I had up in my and house. And you pull out Did the you kiss uh, VHS copy of Mars Attacks and you just go, oh, what is this... Feel like. That's not my fault. They put Jim Brown in the movie, okay? And he <laughs> looks amazing in the entire movie. The 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 dude that plays the sexy man wearing the Pharaoh costume. <laughs> the boxer. Oh, of course. Um, well, I just I want to uh, tell all the kids out there, hopefully there's not actually children listening to this show, but you don't try to rub yourself on things with corners. And right. Jackie, I wish that somebody would have told you that when you were I younger. Wish that. I I'm wish. worried about I like the pain, but that's a oh, whole no. other problem. Oh, no. So let's get into how this movie got made. We've talked about the trading cards. Let's talk about the pitch. Jonathan Jims wrote the screenplay and had stated out uh, and had started out rather as a playwright, the son of famed playwright Pam Jims. Uh, He went on to writing screenplays and got uncredited rewrite work on Batman, Tim Burton's 1989 Batman, and wrote a few scripts for Burton that never came to fruition, such as a Beetlejuice sequel called Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian, which I would have Which I definitely would have watched. Now, this is also, (laughs) like other movies that we have discussed, like Princess Bride, this movie was also attempted to have been made in the early 80s by Repo Man director Alex Cox. Yes, Cox. there was a failed attempt. And he had been a huge fan of the cards, and he had proposed a Mars Attacks movie to Orion Pictures and TriStar Pictures. And over four years, he wrote, he wrote three different drafts of a screenplay. And even though he kept trying to get this through, eventually he gave up because they wouldn't green light the script. And then, uh, but then they had the idea and Jonathan Gems was working with them. And so he was the one that picked up starting to write the screenplay and then pitched it to Tim Burton. And so that's, can you imagine? I know that Repo Man, you know, I know Alex Cox went on to do other things, but I would be so pissed. It's like, man, uh, yeah. I wrote many versions of this script, and now you're just going to take it and run with it? Oh, okay. Okay, fine, fine, uh, fine. I would write a bunch of mean stuff about Mr. Jonathan on bathroom walls. I would. Jonathan <laughs> Gems. 
is hard as a gemstone. That's what I've and read. I, so I like to rub on him because he's rub, got rub, the sharp rub, corners. <laughs> and you give me something to rub, I rub on. <laughs> that's why now Jackie prefers square dicks. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fit it in the hole. So he pitches the concept of Mars attacks to Tim Burton, as well as Dinosaurs Attack, which is another trading we card have based to film discuss idea. Real quick, Dinosaurs Attack, because I looked up dinosaur. Dinosaurs Attack is yeah. another trading card series, and I apologize that I immediately interrupted you. It is hilariously violent. It is. It, so it was another, it's another trading card series done by the Topps Company in the late 70s. And so Warner Brothers had owned the rights to these cards. And some examples of these dinosaur cards? One card, a grandma blasts the eyeball of a giant reptile clean off with a shotgun, while another depicts an open-mouthed T-Rex devouring the human passengers on a roller coaster. The final card saw the remaining dinosaurs ripped apart as the time travel effect is reversed after the lead scientist sacrifices himself to the six-eyed supreme monstrosity, a massive devil-like dinosaur that fans often refer to as Dinosaur Satan. I Hang on a second. must <laughs> see this Wait a second. <laughs> I have that's to. Amazing. And so th- that's is why this I, based uh, on science and reality? Is there a six-eyed devil monster d- dinosaur? Because I will worship him. Uh, <laughs> yes, and I also again would love to see Tim. Uh, I would love to see have seen Tim Burton in his prime make dinosaur attacks. So did the did the dinosaurs time travel or did the people? Great question. I think both. Probably both. They meet in the middle. They meet mm-hmm. in the middle. <laughs> oh, okay. and then bite, 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 bite. <laughs> but if you look up the pictures of it, it they are another. It is hilariously violent. So Burton, I think, is drawn to this pitch because he wants to pay homage to the films of Edward uh, Wood Jr., uh, which would also get his own Burton-directed biopic in 1994 starring Johnny Depp. Fantastic film. Love it. And Ed Wood Mm -hmm. directed low-budget B-movies such as uh, Plan 9 from Outer Space uh, and a bunch of other just schlocky B-movies. Like, he wanted a herky-jerky look and feel, and that's going to come into play with their approach to the visual effects. Burton goes to Warner Brothers and gets the studio to purchase the film rights to the trading card series for him. Jim's writes a script in 1994, and Warner Brothers budgets it at $260 million. dollars was like, okay, okay, I want to do this right, obviously, studios. So just give me $260 million, and I will do this properly. Can you imagine the look on their faces of how quickly they went, no! They wanted to do it for $60 million. Yeah. So Jim's is now stuck with this script, just drafting it, drafting it, drafting, trying to lower this budget. They had to take out... From the original, after them saying, all right, they came at them with $260 million. Then the studio came back saying, okay, we'll give you $60 million. They cut out of this huge cast already at this point in time. They had to cut out 37 lead characters. Jesus that, for that Christ. They had to pull out. There was, like, there was another, there was a suburban housewife. There was a televangelist. There was survivalists. There were college students and colleagues of Professor Kessler. 37 other lead characters were taken out at this point. They had to delete locations of destruction from the screenplay as well, including China, the Philippines, Japan, Europe, Africa, India, and Russia. (laughs) They still did huge destruction (laughs) Yes, Yeah, it was crazy. It's insane. insane. This was supposed to be 
so such an epic movie and it i really is. feel like it's crazy yes <laughs> and that he gets at least tim burton but for the most part gets what he wants cast wise which i imagine they all worked for a lot less than they usually were they would for, have had to have knowing mm-hmm. that it's 60 million and seeing all of the cgi work that has to be put into this movie and all of the action sequences and everything else i think that they must have taken a hit that way but I just, I, I can't even imagine feeling, he must have felt so deflated after all of this. He wrote 12 different drafts in 12. the end. At one point they pulled in Scott Alexander and Larry Krasuski, who were writers on Ed Wood. It was just this monster undertaking. And once they got that screenplay ready to go, they uh, actually had a very difficult time getting people to be a part of it. Uh, it was actually all thanks to Jack Nicholson, really, that uh, they would end up getting this monster, incredible cast. I think the best thing about this movie might be the cast. Yes. It yeah. is so good. And even Tim Burton yeah. says, I really wanted to try something different. The only time I had ventured into bringing together several high-profile stars was for the Batman movies. And here I wanted to repeat this experience on an even bigger scale. There are more than 20 lead roles in Mars Attacks, so it was quite a challenge for me to put together this cast. The first role I cast was actually the one of Lisa Marie, my girlfriend, who is yes. truly from another planet and who could be the only human being able to play a Martian. She's got such a fluidity and a remarkable sense of her body that she truly was mesmerizing and created a real eerie feeling. Um, Yeah, she's fucking phenomenal in that part. I really want to do that as a Halloween costume at some point. Yeah, and uh, Also refer to, this is Lisa Marie who I gave the world's worst interview to about 10 years ago maybe. Oh, now I want to see Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. It's her. That's funny. I also (laughs) going to throw this out there. I am confession time. Always assumed Lisa Marie and Lisa Marie Presley were the same. Were the same. That makes sense. I always thought there was. And even to look at that, I was just like, man, she looked so different. And then looking back, I was like, oh, well, I'm an idiot, but I can't be the only person that has confused the two before. I'm sure not. Like, uh, she's a really interesting kind of mysterious creature because she's not really prevalent in, like, pop culture, but she's been in some cool movies. Yeah. But she, her, her physical abilities in that scene are really truly awesome like she she kills being that weird alien creature when like he they turn and she sort of like scuttles along and goes right back into flowing uh so great it really is otherworldly so and it's and so besides her though john jim's uh said agents didn't want their star clients to playing playing loser roles which is such a funny thing to me i like never thought about that in terms of stars picking roles well and also they all die they all die such horrific deaths so in Mm -hmm. looking at it i imagine a lot of their agents were like no and and then something that i i I kept seeing in all of the reviews as well is talking about how people these huge stars would die and there was no remorse around them it was if like oh okay well you just that's why it's great yes yeah that's why it's fun. It's it's also it's like predating right the scream thing. Did scream come out yet? I don't think it did. No. And that was its big magic trick was setting up the expectation that oh this is going to be the star of the movie. They would never kill her off in the very beginning, and then they do, and that's what's so fun about it. Yes. Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait! You look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money? A lot less. 
I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV, starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So Jack Nicholson is approached for the role of the president early on as Burton had such a positive relationship working with him on Batman. Nicholson joked that he wanted to play all of the roles and Burton would eventually cast him as both Artland and president. And I it actually the first time I saw the movie, I could I could not tell that was Jack Nicholson for like half the movie, which is nuts. But also originally Warren Beatty was supposed to be the president, which is why also why Jack Nicholson saved them so hard because Warren Beatty was supposed to be in it and then he dropped out. And then Paul Newman was supposed to play the president. So Jack Nicholson had had the other character, which is why he said I'll okay. play multiple because Paul Newman was too upset about the violence in the movie. So then he dropped out. And then Jack Nicholson is like, I mean, Tim, I could do both. I, I, I think maybe Jack Nicholson as the um, casino owner is my favorite person in this movie. It's so good. I kind of actually my favorite person, I think, might be Annette Benning. Oh, my God. This. Annette Benning is so good. In it. And also even uh, and Gems said about Jack Nicholson. He said, we started getting requests from even more stars than there were parts for. It was like a tidal wave when Jack came on. So he really did bring with him most of the other cast because they're like, oh, Jack Nicholson's in it? All right. Yeah. Including Glenn Close. Yeah, Glenn Close is funny as fuck. Yes, she's amazing in this movie. I will keep this brief as possible, but I will just say Jack Nicholson started acting at the age of 18. He did a lot of films with indie giant Roger Corman, which is a lot of uh, great talents, big breaks. Uh, It wouldn't be his biggest break, though, until a decade later when he was a last minute replacement for Rip Torn in Easy Rider as an alcoholic lawyer named George Hanson. I definitely would have loved to have seen Rip Torn in Easy Rider, though. Yeah, that would have also been really good, though. But either way, that put him on the map, and after that, he is in a slew. He just crushes it through the 70s and 80s with films like Five Easy Pieces, The Last Detail, Chinatown, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, as well as uh, The Shining in the 80s, Terms of Endearment, and, of course, The Joker in Tim Burton's Batman. Uh, And he reflects on that role very favorably, saying, I considered it a piece of pop art. Loved that role, loved working with Burton, so that's how he ends up in. And I just love, what I love about our show is that we can be a platform for actors, and I'm just glad we're getting his name out there. People can know, finally... So everyone can finally learn about Jack Nicholson. Yeah, I kept that one brief. I mean, honestly, I had to keep all of these brief. Be- They're because, all And I'm not even going to cover everybody because yeah. it's impossible. But I did I did like that it gave me an excuse to learn a little bit more about Annette Benning, who modeled her character Barbara Land off of Anne Margaret's turn in Viva Las Vegas. And initially, Susan Sarandon was close to getting the part. But Benning got yeah. it. Benning started out in the theater in San Francisco and eventually made it to Broadway. I did not know this. This is a 
another summer classic I'd love to cover on this show. Her first film was The Great Outdoors, starring John Candy I, and Dan Aykroyd. That Ackroyd. was her first movie? I love The Great Outdoors. I yes. love The Great Outdoors. <laughs> it I is one of my favorites. I'm very happy to cover that anytime you want to, ladies. Uh, so... Either way, uh, this leads to more work in the late 80s and early 90s. She was so huge around this time in film. I, I just feel like she was in everything. But Bugsy, regarding Henry, and The American President, which Jackie mentioned earlier, were uh, some of her bigger President. films. But this but this film sees her as like not this like mom or this wife. Ooh, it's a fun it's, she's character. She's this fun character. And, and it made me want to see Benning do more. I think that it potentially is the look into the my future. <laughs> I think that could be me. Like, it, it, I just love that for her. I, I always see her as such a normie in movies. You know what I mean? And it was so fun to see her play. This is the thing. And even Tim Burton was talking about this experience. He said it was so much fun to come on a set full of stars. Quite bizarre. There were scenes where I was directing all these bigger-than-life stars, and I was really blessed to have such great actors working against imaginary green men. That was the most surreal thing. All of these stars came in, and they basically reverted to play acting. They all got into the spirit of it, and it was a joy to watch them, to watch this firework display of talent sparkle in front of the camera. Because that is also... that You see these amazing actors that were allowed to be bigger than life characters in ways that a lot of them don't usually get to play like Glenn Close who yes of course later on she gets to do you know 101 Dalmatians and things like that but in the earlier 90s I feel like in the 80s and the 70s she was playing more straight characters and I think that's why a lot of them ended up wanting to do this movie for probably less than they would be paid because they're just allowed to be these you know theatrical circus performer creatures and it's so fun i i also i don't you'll probably mention her but i just wanted to say what one of the people i was excited to learn a little bit about was um sylvia sydney i love she's so cool the one who plays the grandmother in the in mars attacks and she also plays the realtor in beetlejuice And I just looking into her life a little bit, it's like I only know her from those. Yes, from these two things. But she was acting her entire life and she was stunningly beautiful. I mean, she still was beautiful, honestly, in Mars Attacks. But But this is different. She's like a classic Hollywood beauty. Yes. in these old black and white photos that you almost feel like how how is that woman the same woman? She's got these cartoon eyes. It's I love that she was like a sort of de- more demure actress back then and she like leaned into these fun weird comedic roles in her older years yeah. that just makes me mm-hmm. so happy. And she's so fun in this movie mm-hmm. for sure. Uh, you also see a Pierce Brosnan that is like exploding at this point in his career as he's yeah. just becoming uh, 007. And also Hugh Grant was originally supposed to be this role, which makes yep, more he sense. won it over Hugh Hugh Grant. I totally get that for for both sure. Of but them. Pierce Brosnan definitely is the guy does, for that. He part. does a great job, and I think especially it works worked really well for his persona at the time as 007 to see him in this ridiculous role as like eventually a headless man in love with a dog woman. I I understand (laughs) it too. As an adult too, that character is more funny to me because I understand the context of them using the parody of like the sixties trope that he's just so, he does it such a straight man version of that. And it's so funny. So funny. His situation is crazy at just 22 years old. Tennessee Williams 
chose him to star in the British premiere of his play, The Red Devil Battery Sign, which was so successful, Brosnan would get a telegraph from Williams that simply said, thank God for you, my dear boy. And he has kept that telegraph with, on him to this of day. Of course. Uh, but it's also like, did you, Tennessee Williams like existed when you existed, Pierce Brosnan? So crazy. Brosnan, like, that's insane yeah. to me. Uh, so he... He films, he does films, plays, and television until in Britain until 1982. Then he moves to Southern California, where he gained popularity as the title role in the NBC detective series Remington Steel. Remington and Steel. I don't think I ever, I don't even remember that show, but I can, no. I, I, the name sounds familiar. But either way, I think I first saw him in Mrs. Doubtfire. Yes. Of course. And guess what? There's a girl named Natalie in that movie and a girl named Natalie in this movie. So he says my name a bunch of times. Ooh, he's only ever talking to you, Natalie. <laughs> That's right. And most especially, of course, is James Bond around this time. Uh, and so, yeah, great choice for the role. Glenn Close, we already mentioned her. She wins the role of First Lady Marcia Dale over Meryl Streep, Diane Keaton, and Stockard Channing, all of whom I would Which also love to see. Which all of them would have done amazing. All of them would have killed that part. They would have been great. Yeah. All of them. Would have been fantastic. She began acting in theater at the age of 27 in the mid-70s in plays and started winning Tony Awards in the 80s for plays like The Real Thing, Death and the Maiden, and as Norma Desmond in the Andrew Lloyd Webber production of Sunset Boulevard. Man, I would love to Her see Her first that. film role was as Robin Williams' character's mother in The World According to Garp. Oh, I by, love The World According yeah. to Garp! <laughs> Followed by the part of Sarah Cooper in The Big Chill. I want to do The Big Chill really Those bad. Those are two of my favorite movies of all time. I want to do both of them. They're two of my favorite movies Hell of yeah. all time. But it was her part in Fatal Attraction that would shoot her into uh, famedom and become her most iconic role. Burton also, as you already mentioned, Natalie, brought in such favorites as Sylvia Sidney from Beetlejuice, Olan Jones from Edward Scissorhands. She's fantastic. She was so Amazing good in Edward Scissorhands. Again, all mm-hmm. these people took these small parts and blew them out of the water. It's like when she, yep. when she like cocks her gun and she's like, uh-huh. they ain't taking the TV. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's so fun. The, the very unknown at the time Jack Black in that part. Also, uh-huh. do you guys have any in, um, inside info? I was trying to look. Christina Applegate plays yeah. the girlfriend. Yes. And she is barely even barely shown in it. It, it's. I, I'm wondering if there's a scene that was cut out or something because later Maybe. on she's killed and she's having sex with some other some random other dude. dude. And I feel yeah. like yeah, there was so some weird. middle story that we didn't there hear. There must have been, especially because if you look at the scene where she gets killed while in the middle of fucking did you see inside of her coolest shit trailer yeah, that was there's dead like something to kill? else happening here and also at the time christina applegate was already Huge. pretty famous for married with children yeah. so it would be weird that she would have no lines yeah it's, basically it is very strange i totally believe you that a scene was cut out i think what they're just implying in general is that like these people can go uh, the the parents clearly don't care about the grandmother and just care about themselves. And c- clearly she was just down to move right on from her deceased boyfriend to just immediately bang in some other guy. Yes. So I think it's just only that moment is in there just to give you justification for like, these people suck. But it was also so even at points I was like, is that even Stephen uh, Christina Applegate or is right. it was just showing the I back had to of her pause head? It. I was like, yes, when they were ki- when she was kissing <laughs> on Jack Black, I was like, that is Christina Applegate. <laughs> In the same way as a kid, 
I didn't realize that that was Jack Black either because he looked yeah. so different right. than he did when I was in love with him as Tenacious, in Tenacious D years yeah, ago. Yeah, before right. his like, as before his like personality really became part of his known right. entity. He wasn't Jack Black then; he was just a random kid in the movie. Yes, and uh, again, just reiterate: Christina Applegate looks tight in that movie. She's got oh, such wow. an incredible body. Yeah, her stomach—you could bounce quarters <laughs> off of. Jesus, seriously, yeah, Jesus, show. she's so funny too, man. Christina Applegate's yeah. awesome. I just also I don't know uh, if you mentioned the uh, Sarah Jessica Parker scenes Not when yet. they start. Oh, okay, um, I just noticed for the very first time watching it in that scene, the actor who plays Stamford Blatch in Sex and the City is in the scene with her. She yes, that is on the phone. Yeah, that huh. is her manager, and it's so. Biz- I wonder if that is a connection somehow that Weird. they got. They were friends or like how he got that role because this was right before Sex and the City started filming. And speaking of Sarah Jessica yeah. Parker, we would be remiss if we didn't bring up just real quick the costume designer of this movie. Costume designer so is Colleen great. Atwood. Now, Colleen Atwood, in talking specifically about Lisa Marie's ensemble in this mm-hmm. Colleen Atwood took combined inspiration from the trading cards, Marilyn Monroe, the work of Alberto Vargas, and Jane Fonda in Barbarella. That makes complete sense. But what I didn't know about Colleen Atwood... (laughs) is that she has 11 Oscar nominations and she's actually worked with Tim Burton on many of his films including Edward Scissorhands, Sleepy Hollow, Ed Wood and most importantly, and this has nothing to do with Mars Attacks or Tim Burton but also 1994's Little Women which is important to me. And an interviewer asked her, you've worked with Tim Burton, this was a couple years ago uh, about 10 years ago, you've worked with Tim Burton for over two decades, do you have a secret language by now? And she responded, it's funny with Tim and I. We've always had a comfortable way of communicating on a work level. It's a challenge to try and keep coming up with new stuff for him that isn't the same thing over and over again. He really loves color and art and painting and costumes. He lets you do whatever you want to create. He doesn't get in the way and try to control it or anything. He's totally comfortable with my choices. He always has been. He's just a respectful person. Because if you, this movie, and besides just the the amazing outfits on Honestly, of just the of the Martians, everyone in it has such a unique style to them mm-hmm. that is particularly yeah. that character, even no matter how big or small the character, like Christina Applegate. Looking at her, you knew exactly who that person was because of her outfit. Mm-hmm. You knew Sarah Jessica Parker. The minute she steps on screen, you're like, that's a fucking bitch. <laughs> and that is that's really I think we try to talk about this a lot on, on this show. That is indicative of a director who understands an eye enough to go I can delegate different portions of making this movie to the the right people and uh, you see that with like Tarantino and Tim Burton who have such a dis- like distinct style and look same thing with like um and Amy Hackerling like bringing those costumes in you can only create an environment with all of the moving parts working correctly and costume design is so big in making a world look yes right or look Especially the way you for want it ca- camp like this is a camp it needs to, everyone needs to be like almost a stereotype like it has to be so big and but it can, extra. That, can that can teeter wrong on so quickly in different right. directions and you have to really be able as a director part of what your mythology becomes is all of the people you bring around you yes. and being able to like have a good costume designer is important to Tim Burton's entire legacy. Because you think about it, especially with this movie, the colors like in the tops trading cards are so saturated 
They are such mm-hmm. distinct colors for each character that also ties into the rest of the world. There's a reason mm-hmm. why Tim Burton is so attracted to Las Vegas. He's attracted to the colors. He's attracted to the style of it. Same girl. So if you're going Same. to have this whole movie be an homage to 1950s and 60s B movies, you're going to want that those saturated colors for each character, but especially against the backdrop of sandy desert. It really mm-hmm. just gives it such a pop. And does actually really show the American landscape, which were just very loud people who like to take over but nature. Also think about the red dress in Beetlejuice and how you, like, the second I say the red dress in Beetlejuice, you know exactly mm-hmm. what I'm talking about. That pop. Oh, yeah. Right, right. I mean, just Beetlejuice's outfit in yeah. general, the, the black and white stripes and everything in that scene at the end. Yeah, it's just. It's very important. So I, there's too many stars to name there, to, or to give the backstory to. I will just say Martin Short, Michael J. Fox, who's so Tom great. Jones, oh who plays himself, Natalie Portman, Christina Applegate, we already mentioned, Pam Greer, and Jack Black, who we also Jim mentioned. Brown. Uh, Tom Jones, man. And Danny DeVito. And I, and Danny DeVito, from, uh, of course, brought him back from Batman Returns. He played the Penguin in that with a, a small but incredibly fun part. I mean, everybody kind of has a small but incredibly fun part because it's an ensemble comedy. The only people who have big parts really are Jack Nicholson. Yes, yeah. And, person, oh, man, it's really. so good. To, it's so fun to see Pam Greer, who I, we definitely have to have an episode oh, yeah. on because she's mm-hmm. iconic. She's fantastic. And uh, so, yeah, so so Burton chose Peter Suchitsky to be the director of cinematography after being heavily impressed by his work with David Cronenberg on such films as Naked Lunch and Butterfly and Dead Ringers. Uh, Peter Suchinsky is a British man who started out as a clapper boy at the age of 19. I feel like you shouldn't call anybody that anymore. Hey, give me a clapper boy. Yeah, clap for me, clapper boy. like some kid who works at like a bordello or something. Uh, at the age of 19, like, you know, he like, wow. Wipes him down at the end or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. No, he's the pinch hitter for the ones with the clap. Oh. Make sure, yeah, exactly. Make sure they don't get the, the clap. Or yeah, it steps in. At the age of 19, uh, he was a clapper boy. He had initial success shooting the cult hit Rocky Horror Picture Show. And eventually was the cinematographer for The Empire Strikes Back. So we talk about him on that episode of Wizard and the Bruiser. The Martian girl we already mentioned was played by Lisa Marie, and the wig used for the character involved two separate blonde wigs made with real human hair stitched together that was so heavy, uh, Marie said, I have a scar from the wig. I have a hole in my head from that damn wig. The way that she talks, she's like, I have a hole in my head from that wig. It was torture. It's just the way she talks about it. I know, I'm sure that it wasn't fun. I'll give it to you. But, well... I do. It seems like you didn't necessarily have to fill it all up with Probably. hair. Couldn't you have just yeah. put like styrofoam in the middle no, or something? No, no, no. I don't know, but they didn't it's do that. Hair. It was made with like real human hair, <laughs> and the wig designer lost it in a cab, and they had to spend an extra twenty five thousand dollars to get another one made. She lost it in a cab. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine that day when you realize you've lost that wig? Like how much you oh shit your pants. God, dude. The worst nightmare ever. Uh, and another little cool factoid about filming, they used footage from an actual controlled implosion of the Landmark Hotel and Casino in Paradise, Nevada 
for the assault on Vegas. So I I do want to talk about this real quick because Tim Burton, and if you if you've ever looked into Tim Burton before, he is a, he really is obsessed with Las Vegas to the point that he did a whole art installation in Vegas, um, in in the Neon Museum, which is also a part of Mars Attacks, that shows the um, the visual history of his collection and his studying of iconic signs from shuttered and remodeled casinos and hotels and stores and restaurants and businesses in Vegas. So this is what Tim Burton had set up. So he's always been obsessed because he also grew up in North Hollywood. So it's close enough for him to get to Vegas. And so when he found out that the Landmark Hotel was going to be actually demolished, he immediately knew that he was going to use that as the Galaxy Hotel. So special effects technically could have accomplished the sequence, but since they were already demolishing it, then you have, and if you watch it, you can see how it comes down that it is actually, and think of also immediately, you now that we know that he wanted to spend $200 million more on this movie than he was allowed, it makes sense, and this is actually very intuitive to think like, oh no, then we don't even have to pay to have that made. Okay, great, let's get over there, uh, let's record it real fast, and then and then plop it right into the movie because this is where like Tim... Tim Burton does have to think on his feet that even though he's a huge movie maker at this time, it's still like, how do we save as much money as possible? He even said about it filming. Always. The demolition of the Landmark Hotel for Mars Attacks was one of the most powerful moments of my life. Burton writes in his artist statement, which also recalls his childhood trips to the city, because for him, Las Vegas is larger than life, colorful, shocking, charming, and strange. A place where everyday rules seem not to apply. Makes sense of why he in like of all the places that they had to get rid of in making Mars attacks like Holden had said originally there were supposed to be attacks all over the world he had to include Vegas in this of course yeah and honestly a lot of those attacks to mirror like a lot of the cut attacks mirror the attacks of independence which Day, we which will get into I also do want to bring crazy. up the uh fact <laughs> and I always wondered if this was true and yes it is that the Martians go to the town of Pahrump in Nevada. Oh, and yeah. And Pahrump is the residence of Art Bell, mm-hmm. the author and ah. radio show host of Coast to Coast AM. And that was done completely on purpose. It was a little bit of an inside joke to go to Art Bell's hometown and have it destroyed it. by aliens. Nerd out, <laughs> nerd. So... Let's get into the visual effects because this really is such a fundamental element of this film. It is this bizarre bridge between stop motion and computer generated animation and effects. And it, and it was actually done by Industrial Light and Magic. Uh, but this is how we get there. In 1996, digital visual effects, they were having a huge year in film. Independence Day, Twister, another big one. Like it was, it was starting to be like, oh, we can insert computer graphics Cal. into live action film make it look realistic and it did make it like actually feel it did yeah. the first thing that Another we cow. <laughs> Jackie, I'm just looking at your face, trying to figure out what you're doing. I know, say. Cow to the cow, <laughs> and it was another cow. Cow to the cow. There was a lot, man. There's a lot of cow abuse in all yes. these movies because the first scene yeah. in this is all the cows. Please on call fire. it a moose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, don't, don't call it that. Uh, 
It was the time it, during the 90s was whenever they were able to sort of get these bigger effects in there with digital stuff. And the first thing we want to do as human beings is watch the planet burn in a million <laughs> different ways. So there was just nothing but natural disaster movies for yes. like 10 yes. years straight. I love them. Or alien disaster movies. Anything that destroys the planet. Yeah, just seeing the planet be completely destroyed. And they, of course, do more of that in this film. Initially, Burton wanted stop motion like he had done previously for films like Beetlejuice and, quote, wanted to make the special effects look cheap and purposely fake looking as possible. Of course, again, paying homage to those old goofy B-movie sci-fi films. And so he had a man named Barry Purvis pull together a team of 70 animators to compile test footage, which was halted when the budget was projected, projected at a hundred million dollars. So, so he again, started all of this before he got the budget. He's like, okay, okay, okay. I'm gonna already. Yeah. I'm just gonna start it because this is what I wanted to. I wanted to be stop animation. I'm just gonna start it now. But no, 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 Tim Burton. You really thought you were gonna get the 260 million, didn't you? You really thought you were gonna get it. <laughs> Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait. You look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money. A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So, producer Larry J. Franco then had the effects company Industrial Light and Magic create a series of tests that changed his mind. Franco was just coming off of the success of the film Jumanji, which I, I loved. Love Jumanji. I loved it with my dad and I loved it. And one of the annoying issues with the stop motion was that the Martians wore helmets. So you had to take the helmet off, change the expression, and then put it back on to shoot every single shot. So visual effects supervisor at ILM, Jim Mitchell, wanted to solve this problem using CG and just created a test on his own accord. They animated this very short scene using an effect shot from Jumanji and just replaced an elephant that was running through the town with these Martians and a spaceship landing and <laughs> them trying to like get like car parts off of a car. And uh, you can actually watch this footage. It's online. There's this, I'm pulling a lot of this from this really great comprehensive breakdown with Industrial Light and Magic about how they got the cool. different effects shots and stuff. And also, again and again, you see with all of these people that, that have worked with them, and even though everything keeps changing for Tim Burton and what he wanted, what I enjoy that I've seen uh, some other directors not do it this way is that every change that happened, Tim Burton like flowed with it. He immediately was like, okay, okay, mm -hmm. all right, this isn't working. Okay, cool. I trust you. And you should do that. I think that sounds great. He even mm -hmm. said, it sure was a trip. It really was a challenge to figure out how to bring them to life and give the illusion that they truly exist because they definitely have a real nature. They're like anarchistic kids you can't understand. You don't really know what they want and there is really no clear motivation for their behavior. The Martians are just like bad, hyperactive teens. So even yeah. through all yeah. of this... And all of these changing, and he had said this in the middle of them trying to figure out exactly what 
the Martians were going to look like. He was just still excited about the journey of making them, even though it wasn't what he wanted at first. He's really good at changing. Yeah, which is uh, a mark of a good director, Mm -hmm. because a lot of directors won't do that. David Andrews said, Tim didn't want it to look animated. He wanted it to look photoreal so people would feel a War of the Worlds vibe. And what's interesting is, you'll notice in the credits, I'm given a visual effects supervisor credit as opposed to like an animator credit. Right. Because Tim didn't want it known that there was animation in this movie. He wanted to pull a sleight of hand with these Martians. So the main trick was to give the CGI a stop-motion feel in subtle ways while still having more advanced CGI elements present, such as motion blur, so that it had this kind of mix between the two. So using the models they already created by the stop-motion team, including the Ambassador, the Emperor, and several Martians in green spacesuits, as well as a dozen bikini-clad Martians, they scanned them into the computer— and yeah, right, because it's before they get their spacesuit put on, they're just wearing little speedos. tiny bodies. <laughs> so they kind of look like Henry, actually, a little bit. <laughs> a little bit, yeah, when he wears his tinies. I call them his tinies. Uh, Jim Mitchell said one of the biggest issues we had to deal with was that the detail and intricacy of the brains of the Martians was quite tricky. That was all done strictly in view paint, our 3D painting system. And I have a couple other quotes like this, but I'll just say, this is a really interesting time for Industrial Light and Magic. Like, mm-hmm. they're just starting to figure things out. There's even another one with a uh, liquid. They're like, we didn't have, like, a liquid sim. Right. Yet. Like, a, something that simulated mm-hmm. that. We had to just figure out how to do that. And a lot of times they were doing things by hand, like with this visual painting thing that they were doing. They even had 27 technical directors to generate the texture and lighting effects for each frame. 27 people just for each frame to have the proper texture and lighting. They are, like you said, figuring this out of what, how they're going to make many more movies to come. Right. But I, th- I think this is really a good time and, and something maybe... I wish we would go back to a little bit more. Maybe we are now, but there was a period where when CG became a thing, everything just became this like globby, like all kind of flat shit that doesn't hold up when technology changes. And I think even watching it this week, the the aliens hold up pretty yeah. well because they had yeah. all of these elements combined together. And I think that's the best use of CG. I think yep. people overuse it all the time and it makes shit look bad, especially as like the way screens change. It makes it look even worse on new technology. And so it's like mm-hmm. you need some of those real elements in there to make it hold up over the time. I completely agree. I think that that was proven especially true with because I think they took it too far after this point before yeah. the Lord of the Rings yes. trilogy. Yeah. And then Lord of the Rings trilogy was like, why don't we com- com- uh, compile actual mm-hmm. models? Yeah. Actual, like actual, you know, mo- mocap stuff mm-hmm. with this layer of CGI, and we're gonna put it all together, and then it, and then it comes to life. But when mm-hmm. it's just CG, mm-hmm. then it becomes just not no, yeah. no good. You know, I'd rather see a cartoon. Than Me too. That, yeah, you know, at that point, just full on animated. Yeah, you know. So yeah. So David Andrews said, I think the essence of the Martian animation was comic timing. From my point of view, it was about casting. Take, for example, the scene of the Martian at Congress. You want somebody in there who can pretend that they're this leader, right? And so my animation lead was Jen Emberley. The aliens are assholes, man. They were. Yes, they're shitty. So my animation lead was Jen Emberley, and she's diminutive. And so she could play a little Napoleon. It's not like it was totally casting, but the Martian's just a little bit, you know? She can command her status even though she's small. 
So they got actual people in there to to perform, to act, and we're basing off that. Again, such a better move than just animating fully from scratch. Mm-hmm. Uh, David Andrews also said, the reference that we used on the eyes and on the head movements was birds. I thought birds are obviously lighter than we are, and boy, can they ever crank their heads around and move their eyes around. So let's make them bird-like or reptile-like, because that'll make them freakier, which I think is a lot of funny yeah. fun knowing that, watching them, being like, yeah, you're totally, so, totally based birds. on birds. It makes yeah. so much sense. They're huge, round eyeballs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and this is where I was talking about the liquid sim. A much more complex issue for them was the exploding brains. They had to, they, like, they didn't have a liquid simulation at, at ILM yet, so they had to use what resources they had to pull it off, like a kind of a magic trick that incorporated hand animations and a particle sim they were working with. And mm. just this bizarre, and I, this stuff, I'm like saying this stuff out loud and not fully understanding sure. what that is, how they took hand animations and something called a particle sim to create, and I was looking for it because I had done this research before I watched the movie again, and I was really looking for that, and those blowing up brains look great! Yeah, they do. They look great, and also, it's the same with, I'd never really paid attention to the opening sequence before. The opening sequence is amazing, Mm -hmm. but it took Mm -hmm. them so much time to do! It's really That was actually done by Warner Digital Studios. They had a small hand in this, too. They essentially did everything that didn't involve Martians. Yes. So the flying saucer shots, the giant robot scene, sequence a lot of vegas stuff yeah that was all that was all them and that was like a newly established studio and Mm. i think they knocked it out of the park yeah super cool yeah as well as that as well as that opening and uh yeah they used uh they also borrowed uh, what's cool is that they had this whole wing this whole like or this whole like part of the pre-production process where they did all this stop motion work and they used like all of it they used cool. sets built by that stop motion team. They had to. They didn't have much of a yeah. choice. They were I running know, out right? of money. <laughs> yeah, completely. But that was what was so cool. They got this like photorealistic look and in, in the backgrounds of the spaceship, and it just felt it felt it felt cheesy B movie, but also at the same time like really future forward. Mm-hmm. And that, that I think maybe that there is sort of an example of what happened to Burton later on, and what happens to yeah. a lot of directors, which is when you're given an endless budget. You start just like you start rolling too much into everything that you like. You had that stop motion. Yeah. Maybe it wasn't what you wanted exactly, but then you make it work instead of going, "We'll shoot all this and then maybe we'll just make it all digital." Which is stuff yeah. that happens. Like that's what happened with "I Am Legend," yeah. that movie, that Will Smith movie, where they had shot the entire movie with humans as the creatures, and then they they cut everything out and made them all those digital things, and it looks really mm-hmm. stupid. And yeah. it would have looked a lot cooler with just people because they had too much money on yes, their set. Totally. It's always these struggles, these limitations that make for much more interesting work. Because you got to figure it out. You got to think on your feet. Mm-hmm. Such as the limitation of the head swap scene. Jim Mitchell said, trying to put a full scale human into a miniature spaceship <laughs> along with a CG dog body attached to a real life human head was pretty tricky. Nah. It was also tricky to put the bloody neck stump of Sarah Jessica Parker's head onto the chihuahua. <laughs> Which was actually Tim's Chihuahua. That was oh, used for the show. Sweet. Yeah, it was actually. Oh my god! It was actually Tim Burton's little Chihuahua that they used, and that is a cutie yes. Chihuahua too. Uh, so yeah, that that's all I have on the visual on the special effects. I just think all that stuff's fascinating. There's so much more to read about. Just check out this article that Industrial Light and Magic did. I think with a quick Google, you'll find it, and it's really cool. They 
they fully break down the process and they ha- show a lot of test footage, which yeah. really accompanies that's really cool, it really interesting. Well. Yeah, it's very very cool. Are you ready to talk about the axe, Jackie? Jackie. Are you meaning that the actual what they did was use reverse duck quacks for oh, I them? I thought you were going to say they used a Kathy. No, I mean, yeah. Well, the, yeah, they <laughs> kept all the chocolate away from the Martians. Mm-hmm. And then, man, they just let them go ham out there. Hack. <laughs> Give them their coffee. So Tim Burton said, we did a storyboard reel using a cheap tape recorder. And we don't even remember who did it. Somebody just said, yak, 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 yak. When it came time for the Martians to speak. However. However, however. So apparently Gems, the screenwriter, had never given the Martians any actual dialogue, obviously. And just wrote Ack in as a replacement for them to figure this out later. So that's what Tim Burton said happened. But also two of the film's uncredited screenwriters, Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski. Writer of Ed Wood. Yes. Believe that they devised the particular sound effect with nary a recorder in sight. So they had put, they just started, the pair claims that the ak 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 shtick was their idea. And Karaszewski said it was all us. Because supposedly when Jem's script often called for aliens to talk, he didn't have anything else to put. So that's when Alexander wrote in the axe in the script, which that's where they claim it came from. Karaszewski said, we didn't know Tim was just going to take that and use it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is also really does lead into hand in hand another part of this script that we must discuss that apparently Tim Burton took from someone else but claims that he didn't. And yes, we are talking about the entire end of the movie referring to how the Martians die every time Slim Whitman is Played. It's weirdly coincidental. I will give him that. I don't think Burton necessarily stole from him. I could believe a situation where Burton listened to that episode in his car one day, completely forgot all about it, and then just subconsciously, you know, or or actually Jim. Wait, what are we, what's happening? So we're talking about, so, you know, in the end, Slim Whitman's yodeling is what kills the Martians. But... Howard Stern claims that in 1982, he had done a sketch with an almost identical premise for the New York station WNBC. WNBC. Sorry. <laughs> the title of Stern's bit, Slim Whitman versus the Midget Aliens from Mars. Huh. Years later, when he got around to watching Mars Attacks, Stern couldn't resist pointing out the similarities on the air. And during a subsequent interview with Burton for the Howard Stern show, he raised the subject again. I wouldn't sue you because I love you too much, Stern said, but I don't think it's a coincidence. Burton, for his part, called the parallels surreal and noted that something about Slim's voice is very sonic. Weird. I think that. How weird is that specifically that? artist i mean that is holden i think you could be accurate in saying that somehow that information was transmitted through tim burton even even if somebody mentioned it one time or he heard it it's that seems like too much of a synchronicity to me i feel like that's how a lot of comedy stuff gets quote unquote stolen right exactly it's just a part of in the that sometimes that you may have heard of it or may or or somewhere in your brain it exists because apparently this also happens again in planet of the apes when in the end of planet of the apes they have a an a chimpanzee Abraham Lincoln 
<laughs> and apparently I mean, that I was... I thought of that when I was five years old in the also... sandbox. <laughs> apparently... I was like, what if it was a monkey? That also, uh, <laughs> that, that image was used in a Kevin Smith comic book. Mm. Now, Tim Burton famously does not read comic books and so when kevin smith called him out for it in planet of the apes tim burton's like i don't read comic books and then kevin smith replied yeah we noticed we all saw batman which is a shitty Jesus. thing to say Ooh. whatever wow. batman's great tim burton batman's great that's dumb. i know by the way what the fuck are you talking about yeah i know it's great this is like of all the things ones. kevin smith come on guys come on kevin smith whatever kevin whatever smith, with bro. that you go to whatever jail whatever jail for that but who's not in whatever jail the maker of the score of this movie danny elfman danny elfman it makes so anytime i see danny elfman's name on something i'm like of course it's danny elfman why would i think that it wasn't danny elfman yeah especially when it comes to tim burton but actually this was them resolving a feud to make this movie they were not talking to each other for a while what was the cause of the feud again just so they were working together on The Nightmare Before Christmas. Ah. The Nightmare Before Christmas was a two and a half year project. And in between, while working on it, Danny Elfman also did Batman Returns. So all of that was a lot of weight put on Danny Elfman and it put a huge strain on their relationship. And Danny Elfman said- And one said, time Tim I- Burton farted on set and said it was Danny Elfman to everybody. <laughs> Um, that would make so much sense because Danny Elfman's a stink. He's a stinky <laughs> oingo, boingo. That's why they say oingo, boingo, because that's the sound his farts make. That's right. But he said, Danny Elfman said, I really felt like I had lost a sibling after the incident. So and Danny Elfman didn't work on Ed Wood with Tim Burton, which is the movie right before this. But then he, they made up and a couple of years later and Danny Elfman said, we just got together and said, let's just never speak of it. And everything's been lovely since. They said, as two very thin, strange looking white men, we have to stick together. Yes. They <laughs> well, they also make beautiful magic together. Again, yeah, the yeah, opening yeah. sequence. They the do. use of the theremin, which to me is just Yes. I'm throwing it out there. The theremin is one of my favorite instruments. Yeah. Oh, you mean the theremin, theremin invented by Russian scientist Leon Theremin, which consists of two metal antennas that sense the position of the player's hands, which changes the sound's frequency and volume. Yes, in fact, maybe throughout the 1950s, film composers embraced the oral gadget as a perfect mood setter for science fiction and horror pictures. Funny that Elfman would later say the goal was to invoke the 50s, the sci-fi sound that Tim and I both grew up on. Whoa, due to its uses in such movies as the day the... Earth stood still, and the thing from another world, the public came to us hoping to see theremins with stories about extraterrestrial visitors. Elvin deliberately capitalized on this by using said instrument as a key component of the ominous alien march theme in the Mars Attack score. <laughs> oh my god, that was frightening. Both of you, both of you got red-faced. You got, like you were giving, looked like you were dictators. So that covers the score. Uh, do we want, so uh, Jackie, you wanted to spend a little time talking about the weird relationship that this film has with Independence Day before we talk about how, which relates to that, how it was a giant box office bomb. I, this, I need to get this across because I watched Independence Day for 4th of July and then I watched Mars Attacks for this episode and I have never thought about this before and it actually blew my, it literally blew my mind. My mind is gone. Uh, I got Slim Whitman. 
that Independence Day was supposed to be put out head to head with Mars attacks. But Independence Day actually owes its title and part of its premise to Mars attacks. So you remember, so 1986, Independence Day comes out on Fourth of July weekend. Mars attacks comes out later on in the year. So while Tim Burton was working on Mars Attacks, Dean Devlin and Roland Emmerich were writing in an alien invasion movie of their own. But theirs has a much more serious tone, obviously. The duo both knew that both pictures would be released at some point in the summer of 1996. And Emmerich said, I said to Dean, we can't do our film after a parody comes out. We had to beat Burton to it. So if it came out on 4th of July weekend, we could beat Mars Attacks, which was coming out originally at this point in August. So we wrote the concept of Independence Day around the release date. Dean said, let's just call it Independence Day for now. We can come up with something better later. And so if you because then in watching Independence Day again. Knowing that it was originally written not as a movie about Independence Day, isn't this such a brilliant marketing tool that Mm -hmm. they put the name Independence Day on it? They put it out on Fourth of July, and I don't know about y'all, but I watch it every single year because of because of the Fourth of July, and it makes so much sense. And part of the reason why Mars Attacks flops is because then people are looking at Independence Day and they're looking at Mars Attacks and they're like, well, Mars Attacks is supposed to be the comedy version of Independence Day. Independence Day is the drama version of Mars Attacks. So they didn't like what they saw when they went in to go watch Mars Attacks because they thought it was supposed to be an over-the-top comedy, which it is not. It is an homage to B-movie sci-fis. Mm-hmm. And it just, it, it makes so much sense. One movie takes it seriously, the other one doesn't. And people constantly are comparing the two. And even a lot of people say both films are hybrids of vintage genre fare, drive-in ready alien invasion spectaculars crossed with the star-studded Irwin Allen disaster films of the 70s. Both include the on-screen destruction of landmarks across the world. Both center on beleaguered American presidents who find themselves increasingly overwhelmed. There's a lot of Americana propaganda in both of them, sincerely. Yes, both features a crooner in a supporting role. We've got Harry Connick Jr. in Independence Day. We've got Tom Jones in Mars Attacks. But they are two separate, complete movies. Both have white trash heroes who die in the movies. Yes! (laughs) Just, Just killing people off. And so no wonder people went into Mars Attacks thinking that it was going to be something very different than it actually was, because they just were already in the mood for the anti-Independence Day, and that's not what they got. Although I guess it kind of is, because yeah. everybody dies. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah it, but, you know, it, it found its audience over the years. Definitely became more of a cult hit yeah. as the years went on. But with a combined marketing and production budget of $100 million dollars, the film made a worldwide total of 101.3 million. Ugh. Yikes. That's VV bad. VV yes. bad. That sucks. Yeah. No Oscar nominations, no Golden Globes, no BAFTAs. It was nominated, though, for some big sci fi awards. The Saturn Awards. The Saturn Awards. Yeah. So we've got it. So it won, it won multiple Saturn Awards. It won um, multiple uh, Hugo Awards, which is an, also honors sci-fi movies. It won some MTV Movie Awards, which we know that's good. That goes to the top of the Best list. Online kiss. 
and best penis suck. I think his, <laughs> I think that style of that tongue in cheek self awareness was a little ahead of its time. Yeah, I think people would have appreciated it more now. And the like black comedy of just incinerating yeah. people left and right, I think is a lot funnier now than it was maybe in the 90s and also it is kind of fun that uh, earlier this year warner brothers might be redoing a sequel of mars attacks Ooh. with tim burton Ooh. attached Where, whoa, and it would really? be a modern day remake of the original is it gonna be over zoom <laughs> 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 our lives are nightmares <laughs> Is there actually is there actually still talks about the sequel? There are still talks of the sequel, and I do want to leave it in this fun little quote from Tim Burton. Tim Burton was asked about what the aliens meant in the movie. The question was, is it your intention to say that, in a way, we are the alien? We have our enemy within us? And Tim Burton's response was, in a way, yes. The Martians are symbols for different ideas, and mainly the idea that things aren't necessarily what they seem, and that some things maybe are, but we can't figure them out. I think it's always overly pretentious and worthless to try to pretend to understand and know everything, Mm -hmm. and this movie is a little bit of an allegory of that concept. The question is not whether the Martians are good or bad, and what are their motivations— The question becomes, what kind of human beings are we under such pressure? Mm -hmm. Are we willing to sell out our friends and family? Are we cowards for trying to avoid the fight? What are we? I believe that it is in such times of high pressure and stress that you get to the heart of your soul and you face your demons. Sometimes the enemy isn't the aliens or your neighbors or your family. Sometimes we are our own enemy. Very relevant to right now in society. I know. Yeah, for sure. Love it. All right. That's our episode on Mars Attacks. Thank you so much for joining us. If you'd like to support us further, patreon.com forward slash page seven podcast is just $5 a month for tons of bonus content. At least a bonus episode a week, but it's definitely more than that at this point. Check out me, twitch.tv forward slash holdnators ho. I do a live stream with Jackie every Friday night called Jackanese. Come in and say hello. Natalie? Uh, these, uh, the Natty Jean on all the things, and we are also at page seven LPN. And my name is Jackie Zabrowski. Follow me on Instagram at Jack That Worm. I love you guys so much. Thank you for joining us today, and uh, go watch Mars Attacks and have a smile. Yeah, have a yeah. smile. Love you guys. Bye. Take care. Bye, everybody. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors, you can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. 
Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.